0: Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. I'm going to read it, and you follow along. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is the word of the Lord. Well, the widely known 20th century preacher, pastor, author A.W. Tozer once said these words. Let no one apologize for the powerful emphasis Christianity lays upon the doctrine of the world to come. Right there lies its immense superiority to everything else within the whole sphere of human thought or experience. We do well to think of the long tomorrow. We do well to think of the long tomorrow the long tomorrow, or often we, we, we think of it as heaven, or maybe even more accurately, the life to come, or new heavens and earth, or in our passage, the resurrection. That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning, and we will do well to think of the long tomorrow. Now, I just want to say as a preface from the beginning, these Sadducees, deny that there's a resurrection, deny any idea of afterlife. That's probably not our problem, especially in this room, um, but I think we have a different problem, and I think uh, Roger's ministry to us for all these years has corrected it in many ways, but in the West, in the church, in the West in particular, we tend to think of forever, of eternity, heaven, as... We die, our body goes in the grave, and then we float away. Literally, that's a a hymn. I'll fly away, right? No. Our soul or spirit kind of is ghost-like and invisible, and it floats up, and we are in heaven on the clouds forever. That is not the picture of the Bible. Theologians, nerds, uh, like this, speak of this as the intermediate state. What I just described to you, when you die, your body goes in the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord, like body and soul are separated, is not the norm. That is what we think of as heaven, the intermediate state. That's where those who have died in Christ are right now, with the Lord, their souls. But the resurrection, the topic of this passage, and the biblical story, the banners behind me even, tell the true story, that there will come a day when Jesus returns and our bodies will be raised and glorified, resurrected, and we will be reunited with our bodies forever and ever on a new, a renewed earth. That's the picture of eternity. Not up there floating around, but here on a renewed earth in a body that doesn't ache or sag or crack or get cancer or die anymore. That is the resurrection. And so that's What I'll speak, sometimes I may mention, I may say heaven and resurrection interchangeably, but that's what I want us to understand. They're asking about life after death, in particular, eternity on the renewed earth, the resurrection. And (coughs) so, sorry. Um, What we have here is a group trying to come to Jesus and trap him, to trap him or confound him with a difficult question. That's happened a few times now in Luke 20. And here is another example of that, but this time the topic is the resurrection, the long tomorrow. The passage, I think, intends to teach us, and this is in bold in your insert, that King Jesus is the Lord who makes us children of God and promises everlasting resurrection life. King Jesus is the Lord who makes us sons and daughters of God and he promises us everlasting resurrection life. So to explore this, I'm just going to dissect that sentence in two, and we're going to explore the passage with two points. The first one, and where we'll spend most of our time, is that King Jesus promises everlasting resurrection life after death. I get this from verses 27 all the way through 40, this long section, this interaction that Jesus has with the Sadducees. And so there's a handful of things I want you to see. The first is the Sadducees. We meet them in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. So let me geek out here for a second and explain to you who these people are because I think it's important. The Sadducees are a, group, a Jewish sect who dealt largely with the temple. Okay, So where's the temple at? It's in Jerusalem. These are people in Jerusalem dealing with the temple. And they claimed, they claimed to be descendants of Zadok the priest um, under King David. You can read about him back in 1 Kings chapter 1. But these Sadducees, a, they're a Jewish sect of leaders in Jerusalem working with the temple, and they're friendly to Rome. The Romans who are occupying the area, they're, they're friendly with the Romans. The Sadducees held that the Torah, you may remember what that is, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, alone is authoritative. Just the first five books. They denied the resurrection. They they, they denied any idea of an afterlife. They denied that there was a judgment. They denied providence. They denied demons and angels. They denied that um, there is an oral tradition. The oral tradition, you might recall, the Pharisees, a different Jewish sect which we'll talk about in a second, they made up an oral tradition. That is, there's a bunch of laws. We're gonna add laws to them so you don't even get close to sinning. It's like a little fence around the fence so you don't even get near sin. The Sadducees denied all of that. They largely had a simple, ethical view of life. It would go something like this. Believe in a God and be good. Believe in a God and be good. That's what we're dealing with here with these Sadducees. They're aristocratic and wealthy, These would have been the educated ones. And they're fierce opponents with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, a different Jewish sect, and you'll see why they're opposed. Listen to this. The Pharisees accepted all of the Old Testament. They created an oral tradition. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in a judgment to come. They believed in angels and demons. They believed that God was providentially ordering all things that came to pass. They were a lay group of the lower middle class. They weren't especially excited about the Romans and they are much more popular among normal Jewish people. Literally opposites. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Opponents. Now, it's a tad bit simplistic, but to tie it into our day and age, these Sadducees were like today's relativistic liberals. And the Pharisees the moralistic conservatives. And Jesus ticks them both off. He offends the right and the left. And what I find even more interesting is that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the relativistic liberals and the moralistic conservatives, team up to kill Jesus. They hated one another, but this man, he's got he's to go. The Sadducees thought that Jesus smelled like a Pharisee, The Pharisees thought Jesus smelled too much like a Sadducee, and he rebukes all of them. He was neither Sadducee nor Pharisee. And also, lest we think that Jesus was just a middle path, he's not that either. Jesus paved a whole different path. He preached a spiritual gospel that you need and must repent of your sin. But he also talked about caring for the poor and the widow and the refugee. He was gentle but rebuked both right and left. The gospel that he preached ticked off the relativistic liberals and the moralistic conservatives because it's a gospel of justice. That God is a God who is just and must deal with our sin. Why did it tick off the Sadducees, the relativistic liberals? Because they didn't believe there was a judgment. They didn't believe there is a reckoning. And Jesus preached clearly to that. But why did he offend the Pharisees, the the moralistic conservatives? Because he said, your morals have no bearing on whether or not you're saved or not. You can't righteous your way into the kingdom. You can't earn your way by goodness into the kingdom. No, you have to receive the gospel of grace by faith. He offended both the right and the left. And after the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., the Sadducees vanish. They're, they're gone. So that's the, that's the characters. That's the what's going on here, the Sadducees. The second thing I want you to see is basically the story they tell, this hypothetical but well-crafted argument on what the resurrection will be like. If a man's brother dies, beginning in verse 28, this is speaking of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage from the, the Latin word lever, meaning husband's brother. Now, this probably sounded strange to you as you're reading this. Like, what is going on here? You can read more about it in Deuteronomy 25. But before we jump to judgments as to like how strange this is, and is this not oppressive or weird? Like, what's going on here? I, I just simply want us to see that it is a merciful law of God it was meant to protect widows. If you were widowed in Jesus' day, and especially you know, about a 1,000 years before Jesus, if you were widowed with no children, you were in bad, bad, bad shape. Likely property would be taken, you would just lose everything. If you could make ends meet, it was often widows would just pass away and die, usually shortly after they were widowed. But God, in his mercy, embodies a cultural moment in Deuteronomy 25 and creates this merciful law of protection for widowed women of the day. I know it sounds strange to our modern ears, but it's a gracious law. And what they're doing, though, the Sadducees aren't concerned with this law and just talking about it. They're they're trying to prove that the resurrection and the life after death is illogical that it makes no sense, that it's foolish, and they're trying to pin Jesus against somebody. If Jesus chimes in and agrees with the Sadducees, yeah, you're right, that's crazy. Like, pff, the resurrection must be illogical, because that makes, that makes no sense that this would happen, and he's going to offend the Pharisees. But if he comes up with some answer of like, no, the first husband, or the seventh husband, or something along those lines, the Wealthy, aristocratic, educated Sadducees are going to be checking out. How foolish, how absurd, Jesus. So that's the the context, that's the story of what's going on. But the third thing I want you to see is that Jesus does preach clearly a resurrection from the dead. An afterlife that will last forever in resurrected bodies. Verses 34 and 35. He says, the the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so here's the flaw of this hypothetical argument the Sadducees are making. And it was actually, this, this was a Jewish understanding of the afterlife. And that is this, that the resurrection is just like this age. Glory, the resurrection, is going to be very similar to the way things are now. Maybe a souped-up version of this world. Relative peace, the enemies will probably be conquered, but it looks just like the way we live now. And it's here that Jesus is correcting them. Your whole argument's flawed because you think the way things are now, it's just going to be like that in the future. And it's actually here that uh, I, I like the other accounts, especially in Matthew. Jesus strongly rebukes them right at this point by saying this You are wrong, for you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. How about that for a rebuke? You are wrong, and you don't know your Bibles, and you have no clue about the power of God. One of the more harsh rebu- rebukes of Jesus. So he corrects them No, 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 you, you're wrong. There is a resurrection. Wake up, pay attention. But what's going on here with this marriage stuff? No marriage, okay, so Jesus is again just illustrating that the future resurrection is not like this life. Look at verse 36, why is there no marriage? Verse 36 begins, for they cannot die anymore. They cannot die anymore. Marriage is not a component of life after death and this makes sense if you just think about the purpose of marriage to us now, it is a gift. But what is the purpose of marriage? Procreation, displaying the love of Christ for his church, companionship, and mutual growth in godliness, helping one another run our Christian race. Why is marriage not in the resurrection? Because all four of those things are gone. Procreation, not needed. Displaying the love of Christ for his church, not needed. We're face-to-face with him. Companionship, we're all family. Mutual growth and godliness, because we're perfected. Sin is gone, amen? Now, the long tomorrow is not like this life, but what's going on here? Did, as I read that, did, did you kind of think, well, this is, is heaven going to be boring then? Is it going to be bland and bleak? Happens to love, there's no marriage. Like, what are we, what are we thinking? I think... As I began the sermon, we can slide into thinking that glory, that heaven, is boring precisely because we think that it is the disembodied, off in the air spirit life. That's wrong. You are wrong. To quote Jesus. Randy Alcorn, in his book titled Heaven, writes this, and I think it's really insightful. I don't think I put this one in your insert, I apologize. Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our minds on this life and not on the next, and we won't be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the good news that people can spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that even we're not looking forward to? But that's not the story. We are headed to a place where we will dwell with God. He will dwell with us. We will be his people, and God himself will be with us as God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That means we have eyes. We have bodies. He's making all things new right now, but death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The resurrection is way more glorious in every way than we can imagine. And it's not boring, it's not a ghostly place in the sky, it's on a renewed earth. Endless joy. And pleasures forevermore. So moving right along. The last thing I want us to see from this this portion of the Sadducees and the resurrection. Is that God is God of the living. Verses 37 through 40. And in particular verse 38. Jesus presses into them even more. He says that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Pause. There's better passages to go after the resurrection, Jesus. What are you doing? Who does he quote from? Moses. The books they believe. The books that they hold as authoritative. He goes to where they are and he meets them where they're at. Quotes from their authoritative books. And says, you're wrong. Let me show you, even Moses, book two guys, Exodus chapter three, in the the passage about the, the bush, you see that there's a resurrection, why? Because Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. The point being, dead people don't have gods. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead and buried and there is no afterlife, God is not their God. Jesus is is correcting them by saying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are presently alive with God in heaven. And they await the future resurrection when they, along with all of us, will be gloriously resurrected to a bodily existence and spend forever on a new or renewed earth, which is a glorious future, not like this age, but better in every way. You can say bye-bye to death. Sin is gone. No more cancer. No more tears. No more burying people. The old things have passed away. As Tozer said in in the beginning, we do well to think of the long tomorrow. Why? This is where I want to take some application point for us. Two reasons come to my mind. First, not to be morbid. You are going to die. We do well to think of the long tomorrow because we are going to face death. But death is the doorway through which we enter into the long tomorrow. We do well to think of the long tomorrow now, preparing ourselves, preparing our souls, our hearts, so that when we meet death, we enter into the long tomorrow triumphantly. With faith, we, we think now. But secondly, and this is what's helpful to me, when the Bible speaks of this, the, 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 the reason we think of the long tomorrow and would do well to think of resurrection is that we're encouraged in the present. When the Bible, when the New Testament in particular, speaks of the age to come, resurrection life, glory, heaven, it's always in the context of presently encouraging or exhorting believers now to keep going. Persevere in faith. Hold on to Jesus. Keep running the race. That's what eschatology, the end times, the the resurrection is used for, is present encouragement. In our battle with sin and in our growth, all areas of life, present encouragement. C.S. Lewis quoted as much. He said this in his uh, classic work, Mere Christianity. You can follow along as I read it. It's in your insert. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. C.S. Lewis always putting it so well for us. The reason we Think about the, the long tomorrow or the other world, to use Lewis' words, is it affects us now. It changes the way we handle our finances. It affects the way we treat our friends, our co workers. It should dramatically alter the way we're, we, we serve as husband or wife, the way we live with our spouse, alters the way we parent. It ought to change the way we view youth sports. Schedules, calendar, technology, every aspect of life, if that is true. If that is true. And just personally, I don't know if you have felt this before, but in my own life, in my own growth in godliness and and still struggling with besetting sins of my own, I notice that it rears its head and I lose the battle to my own sin most often when I am not looking at the world to come, when I'm not thinking about eternity and glory. And when I am doing well, when I am resisting my flesh most effectively, it's usually because I have on eternal spectacles and I'm thinking about the long tomorrow. King Jesus promises everlasting resurrection life after death. The second point, and much more brief, King Jesus is Lord. That's what's going on here in verses 41 through 44. King Jesus is Lord. Notice in verse 39, then some of the scribes answered. Okay, so rewind. Remember, go back to the Sadducee, Pharisee thing, remember? The scribes are Pharisees. They don't like the Sadducees. The the scribes answer, teacher, you've spoken well because they're over on this side, the moralistic conservative side after Jesus just mic-dropped the liberals. He did it. But he looks right at them. He looks right at them as they're awaiting their King David to come, as they're living these righteous, moralistic lives awaiting King David, the son of David, to return. And just like the first David and First and second, Samuel, establish a golden age of prosperity and peace in Israel. Our king is back. And Jesus looks at them, says, you're, looking, "You're just looking for another David. Let me tell you something. I am the Messiah, the Son of David, but I'm so much more. Jesus is saying that he is greater than David, Israel's greatest king. And he uses David's own words to do so. He's not saying that he's not the Son of David that he's not from the line of David. He is. But he's saying, I'm so much more. I'm not just the son of David. I'm the son of God, the king of the universe. I am Lord. Let me show you, because David called me Lord. And so he quotes from Psalm 110. You see it. uh, 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 In your English New Testament, I'm guessing both of those lords are the same, capital L and then lowercase the rest, If you turn back, if you wanted to, turn back to Psalm 110, verse 1, you would see that that first Lord is the all-caps Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the relational God who condescends to his people to enter into covenant relationship with them. And what's going on is that second Lord there is not. It's a different word. So David is pinning Psalm 110. And is saying, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God creator of the universe, said to my Lord, a different king. And Jesus is coming and saying, that second Lord is Messiah, Christ in Greek. The Lord said to Messiah, and it's me. So how can I, how can the Messiah that you guys are waiting for purely be a son of David, just like David, when David himself calls him superior? Jesus is son of God, not just son of David. He is Messiah. He is king. He is Lord of all. He's greater than David, greater than Israel's greatest king because he's David's Lord. And he's sitting because his work is done. Sitting at the right hand of God, the the seat of power and authority, sitting down because you and I and our sin have been paid for. Jesus has conquered death, and Jesus guarantees our resurrection as the firstborn from the dead, and as he is, we will follow. Now, just last little brief application point from this second section here, that Jesus is greater than David. I think this is supposed to help us see the surpassing greatness of Jesus. His bigness, his might, his beauty. Let me put it negatively. We often have a far too small view of Jesus. I know I do. A too small view of his sovereignty. That our Jesus is sitting in the heavens and does what he pleases. It's amazing. He's ordering and governing all things that come to pass. We have far too small view of the majesty of Jesus. He is a king and he gets to tell us what to do. And it's our, for our good. We have far too small a view of his beauty and his worth. And maybe most challenging, maybe to step on toes, maybe we have far too small a view of his mercy. Dane Ortland pastors us so well in his book Gentle and Lowly, and yes, I'm quoting from it again, but I'm about to give you my favorite quote from the entire book. Pages 179 and 180. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the, fa- the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. And here it is. It means that on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. I don't think it's helpful to, to like have a category for like regret when we get to heaven and get to glory. But if we could speak that way, if there was anything we would regret when we stand before the Lord, I think Dane Ortland is right. It will be how small a view of God's mercy we had in this life. It is true. You are way worse than you think. I am. But Jesus is far more merciful and gracious than you can ever imagine. Let this passage, Son of David, Son of God, Messiah, Lord of the universe, Jesus, lift your eyes to his mercy, his might, his bigness. I'm going to conclude with one last quote from a man by the name of C.S. Lewis who thought a lot about heaven, who used his imagination a lot in thinking about the resurrection. I might spoil something for you, but I'm going to read the last paragraph of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I, I hope to keep it together because it's actually really emotional. You guys know what I'm talking about, who's read it. Lewis concludes his entire Chronicles of Narnia series this way. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly, Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the shadow lands, are dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. Sorry. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Sorry. Now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read. Can't see. Which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. I'd like to invite the music team back up. Jesus, thank you for that truth. You are far more merciful than we can ever imagine. You have purchased not only the forgiveness of sins, but you have purchased and guaranteed our resurrection. Oh, what a day that will be. I pray that, Lord, you would use that as we think about the resurrection to encourage us in the present. Help us persevere in faith. Help us love you till the end. Help us resist sin in the present as we aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.